Welcome to Outdoor by 4 magazine's audio edition of Issue 40. For those unfamiliar with Outdoor by 4, the magazine began its journey as a fully independent, vehicle-based adventure and outdoors lifestyle publication in 2013. Since that time, Outdoor by 4 has been the catalyst for expanding the reach of overland and vehicle-based adventure travel into the outdoors market, with a focus not only on the mode of travel, whether a 4x4, motorcycle, bicycle, or by foot, but also on the adventures themselves and the people who live them. In this issue, you'll hear a sampling of stories from the print edition, including The Dispatch by Outdoor by Four's editor-in-chief, Life Lessons on the Trout Stream, a journey of self-discovery while hunting for native brook trout in the northern mountains of West Virginia, The Solace of Silence in the Healing of Power of Goat Packing, Hisega in the Hills, Adventure Motorcycling in the Black Hills of South Dakota, and Where Does the Road End, an overland adventure down the Andes into the Amazon. There are also a variety of additional stories in this issue you can read by picking up a copy anywhere books are sold, or by subscribing or picking up a copy from the Outdoor by 4 website by visiting www.outdoorx4.com. We hope you enjoy this issue of Outdoor by 4 magazine. The Dispatch by Frank Ludwell. When our first gear issue dropped in 2017, nearly four years after launching the inaugural issue of Outdoor by Four magazine, I would have never thought how significant the gear we had been using during the previous year would be during what would become a global pandemic. Nor would I have expected a global supply chain conundrum impacting both price and availability of product. Last, I wouldn't have considered how all of this would impact a product like that of which your eyes are reading now, or in this case, listening to. Tangible goods have been affected across the board, across industries, and across borders. For example, the price of lumber during the pandemic skyrocketed to levels never seen. How is this relevant? Well, print magazines are made from paper that comes from lumber, so the mere fact you're holding a print magazine, or in this case listening to the magazine, means that you're engaged with a product that's been painstakingly designed, printed, found, and delivered despite the supply chain limitations and subsequent costs to get it to you. This is important to consider, particularly since I've seen several peers in this landscape discontinue producing their product, all while we've made sure not to pass our increased costs to you, our loyal readers who continue to support independently produced media in its variety of forms. Another observation is how we as consumers are making our purchases. Back in 2019, I wrote an editorial about the value of brick and mortar stores and supporting local shop owners by patronizing their storefronts. While I realize and value the impact technology has had on accessing goods that might not otherwise be accessible, I do believe it's a consideration when deciding the online storefront you choose when purchasing those goods. Reputable stores that have a physical brick and mortar storefront along with capacity to process online orders while supporting our community of adventurists is a far better choice than some random dropship retailer or influencer benefiting from the likes of Amazon. Sure, price is always one of the biggest, if not the biggest, considerations when making a purchase decision. However, 
I firmly believe supporting the companies who support our communities, particularly those small businesses of which are the livelihood of local economies and have made the investment to build storefronts and employee workers who are passionate about their craft, is critical if communities are to continue to thrive. Adventure travel and outdoors enjoyment is a centerpiece of who we are within this vast community of adventurists. Let's take this time to value what goes into the products that make our adventures a success, while also being thoughtful of those around us who have struggled during this pandemic. By working together and being a bit more patient as small businesses try to return to normal capacity, while also being cognizant of the struggles we've all endured, we'll have a greater appreciation of the things many of us often take for granted. Life Lessons on the Trout Stream by Rick Stowe Fly fishing has taught me a lot of things. Knot tying, a little bit of entomology, how to read a stream to a very limited extent, and most importantly, how to find joy in the little things. But with long hours on the stream casting into the riffles and plunge pools, you sometimes find yourself pondering thoughts and lessons significantly deeper than the cold waters around your feet. Recently, while hunting native brook trout in the most northern mountains of West Virginia, I received a few gracious lessons on achieving goals and finding happiness in others' success. The trip ended with four beautiful fish in hand for me, none over six inches long, but all amazing creatures which, while small, hold the apex predator spot in their environment. I say hunting and not fishing, because this trip required stealth, a willingness to traverse rough terrain, and many hours of alertness and quick reactions. Still, the efforts were worth it in every sense of the word, and our group got a few good days of fishing and much more from the experience. This journey had been planned for a long while, and the anticipation only enhanced the excitement for our group of four, leaving Tennessee to head north. About a year and a half before, my friend Caleb had taken a job in the mountains of West Virginia and, within weeks, reported back that the trout fishing around his new home was unreal. Over the next few months, messages about ridiculously successful days on the stream left the rest of us envious. With colder weather moving in, we decided to make the trip up for a long weekend before the trout spawning season to collect some fishtails of our own. I definitely didn't catch the biggest fish of the trip, and I didn't catch the most fish of the trip, but I did catch the first fish. Just as we entered the National Forest, we made a quick pit stop at what can only be described as a trickle of a stream. I dropped a fly in a smooth run barely two feet across and almost immediately had a hit. I missed the take on the first hit, but I was fortunate that this tiny brookie was willing to take another chance. Moments later, my very first native brook trout was in hand, all five inches of it. The size didn't detract from my excitement. I had been hoping to land a native brookie for a long time, and sometimes big things come in small packages. A few more of us were successful on this tiny stream running out of the mountain, but the main fishery of our trip was still miles up into the mountains. You'll excuse my vague description of the area. We saw very few people over the course of the weekend, and I'm never one to spoil a honey hole such as this. We arrived at our chosen campsite an hour later, and after the tent was set up to claim the space, 
we donned our waders and headed towards the water. Caleb began to guide us on promising spots, the majority tiny runs between boulders. More often than not, our flies were hit, and when we were fast enough, our reward was a trout in hand. As the day progressed, we split up and fished solo for a few hours. Even knowing the promising waters, old habits die hard, and I found myself skipping over large sections of the stream, looking for the large plunge pools in deep dark waters that normally hold the fish on my local stream. The first day, this strategy betrayed me, and I found myself with a low total at the end of the day. As I assessed my strategy for the second day, it hit me. I had immediately forgotten the lessons I had just learned earlier that morning. You have to use what you know. After a filling meal and a good night's rest, we were ready for a full day of chasing our colorful quarry. We decided to split up and half the group headed downstream past our starting point for the first day, looking to fish their way upstream. Stephen and I chose to further explore the same section and end our fishing back at camp. In my head, I had unlocked the secrets of this section and would correct the mistakes of the previous day. I had a few spots that I wanted to return to Mostly pools, where the wrong approach had spooked fish, but I had soon learned that it would take more than a single pass to outwit the trout. I had forgotten the very simple lesson, don't get too cocky, and after a few spooked trout, missed hits, and only a couple of trout in hand, I was humbled. The trout haven't survived in this thin blue ribbon for untold years because they're easy to catch. Every lesson on the stream didn't come from the trout, while intently focusing on my next cast, I heard a sharp hiss from Stephen. I glanced up and noticed he was staring at the opposite bank. I followed his gaze to a small brown spot that stood out from the rock and undergrowth. At first, my brain couldn't process what I was seeing, but then I picked out two small black eyes, and the brown head they were attached to moved slightly from side to side. It was a fisher, a relative of the weasel, and it seemed perplexed by the two fishermen it had encountered. It watched us while we watched it for a moment, and when I slowly moved my free hand towards my phone, it turned and disappeared among the boulders. This brief encounter was a good reminder to stop and look around once in a while. While the fishing was amazing, so were the beautiful mountains surrounding the stream. At the end of the day, we gathered around the fire once more. We recounted our experiences, good and bad, and enjoyed the kind of relaxation that comes only from a mentally and physically taxing day. With a handful of fish under my hypothetical belt, I was more than happy with the trip. I had achieved my main goal of catching a native brook trout, and even though I didn't catch any of the largest fish, or the most fish, I had been there to share those experiences with my good friends. Outside of the fishing, we shared a lot of laughs and a beautiful landscape. The final night of the trip, I reflected on the weekend and realized that most of my joy had come from celebrating the success of others. We said our goodbyes and loaded up for the journey home. As is the case with most of our adventures, we began plans for our return trip. The consensus was this would become a yearly tradition. As the excitement and laughs continued during the seven-hour drive home, I was reminded of a lesson that I always try to keep at the front of my mind. Spend time with those who enrich your life. It makes wonderful experiences like this one even better.
Beyond the Horizon, Solace of Silence and the Healing Power of Goat Packing. Words by Danelle Lynn, photos by Brandon Green. Some of us escape to nature to depart the hustle and bustle of the city, others for the fresh air and the peace we find on the trails. For some, it is an emotional reset, a way to release stress or anxiety and come back to daily life refreshed. It is exactly that reset which drew ex-soldier and now engineer firefighter Brandon Green back to the woods. He was not a new adventurer. His childhood was one of outdoor adventures and hiking. Mine was not a stay-in-a-hotel type of family, he states with nostalgia. Passion for the outdoors was instilled honestly into the children of the Green family. As a child, Brandon grew up with blue tart temp camping, progressing to a cab over camper, to trailers, to hammocks, and more. They were a family who believed in getting outdoors at every opportunity. They took to national parks, remote camping, European explorations, and if there was a school break, they nearly always made it an adventure. We actually stayed at the French Riviera with a blue tarp tied off a van and got rained out so much that almost all of our family of five slept in the van with one person sleeping outside. It was quite a flood, he says with a smile in his voice. But life gets busy and we lose sight of the simple pleasures of childhood that brought so much joy. Brandon had a break from nature and adventuring as life began to take an overloaded pace. With the military, work, and travel he had lost in the hustle and bustle of life, the inner peace that nature once gave him. But life has a unique way to bring us back to where we need to be, when we need to be there. The major change for me was my time spent over in Iraq, says Brandon. That really gives you a different perspective, puts a whole different outlook on life, not knowing if you were coming home. That really created a different desire in life for what your plans were and how you wanted to spend it. I really wasn't into crowds or gatherings after that, and getting out in nature gave me the peace back. More than 15 years later, the emotions rose, just as raw and still very real for Brandon as we spoke. The things men and women experience in war forever changes them, and those back home who love them know they only ever hear about part of the life-changing array that occurs in war zones. Coming home to what is normal, to reintegrate and design a new life around a new you can be a challenge. Brandon found he could manage this with the great outdoors and getting back to nature, a newfound passion for goat packing exploration. He tells it this way, it, nature, became a schedule for me, really just instead of going to see a counselor or laying burdens on my wife, I went all hippie and talked to trees and let nature do what it was supposed to do. It started with a small day trip stuff of me time and having to get out and basically reset. I did that for a few years, and in 2008, I met my best friend, Mike. He joined the fire department that I was with and basically became my partner in crime outdoors. He is a 2nd Battalion Army Ranger, with numerous tours under his belt in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and I think that really worked for both him and I. We could get out in the woods and know that we were both there without talking about stuff. 
In the evenings, we'd sit around the fire and joke and laugh and tell stories about the way life was going. He is actually the reason I got into pack goats. With all the hiking that we were doing throughout different places, I had my fourth hernia operation in 2015, and that kind of limited the amount of gear I was carrying into the woods and the length of our trips. We were sitting around one night at the station and talking about the next trip, and Mike said that he was doing some research on pack goats. I had never heard of this. For me, it was something completely new. I had not seen any out on the trails that we go, so it was a whole new venture. I started doing some research with him. It took us five or six months of research and looking around for the right type of goats. A lot of the information came through some big people in the field of goat packing, people like Carolyn Eddy, whose books Practical Goat Packing or Diet for Weathers I have read, and John Mayansanowski and his book The Pack Goat. One of the big guys I follow both on YouTube and Instagram is Mark Warmke, I've even had some great personal conversations with him about medical care and setting up the right pack saddles. When I call them pack animals, you may envision the old cowboy pack horses that have the sawbuck wooden saddles on them with saddlebags and everything else. We do basically the same thing with the goats. It is a smaller saddle than what you would use for alpacas and llamas, and we set them up with panniers on each side. It depends on the size of the goat and its age and abilities. Like anything else, you have to train the animal. You cannot just throw 50 pounds on the back of a goat you brought off Craigslist. You really have to take your time and slowly progress so you do not injure the back or the knees of the goat. Brendan and Mike have learned that it is important from the start to show the goat that you are the individual who will protect it when out in the middle of nowhere, and they build on this from day one. It is about creating a bond that will carry you through many months of training before the big pack trips can occur. Our goat picking up trips are part of our adventures. We have found it best when we pick up these goats to take them out camping the very first night, so it is an instant bond. And basically, we are in a bivy sack on the ground with the goat staked next to us. Brandon owns two pack goats. He got his first in 2017, Randy, a purebred Oberhosley. The following month, he got Kane, an Alpine Oberhosley mix. He has never looked back. You can hear in his voice the passion and pleasure that come from trekking out into the wild with his goats. Nature provides solace and peace by giving us access to someone else's backyard. Just like in the ocean, you are entering the front door to the home of sharks, and in the Pacific Northwest, this backyard belongs to the predators, cougars, and bears. I wondered how it would feel to walk and hike with plated offerings into these wild areas. What precautions do they take? There is a large portion of inner peace with being out. You are out with two or three guys, and you don't run into another human being for three days. You don't hear a car, you don't hear a cell phone, you don't hear anything, and you're completely disconnected. And it really helps just reset your body and know you are getting back to your roots and becoming part of nature and the planet and the whole circle of it. We rarely sleep inside a tent. Most of the time, it is simply a bivy sack. 
basically a sleeping bag inside of another shell to protect you from the moisture. And you sleep right there on the ground. I am getting a little older. I will be 42 this year. So I definitely take a nice sleeping mat with me. I do not want to sleep on the ground on rocks anymore. My body does not like it and it makes the hiking hard. It really connects you to lie there at night and just see and smell and hear. We lose a lot of our senses with city living and constantly not being grounded. I practice grounding on a pretty regular basis. It is just basically taking off your shoes and socks, getting out and putting your feet bare on the earth, rolling your toes and gripping your feet. Sleeping out there in nature really lets you reconnect with the humans of old. With a variety of goats on the trails, Brandon and Mike are often found with Alpine, Aberhasley, Sainin, and Toggenberg goats. And if they go out backpacking, their goats go with them. They joke that our goats are the best dogs we have ever owned. They will follow you pretty much anywhere you go, unless it has moving water. They do not like water too much. As we spoke, it became clear that the goats train you. The trips, by essence, force you to slow down, as the goats go at life at a slower pace. The goats stroll with you, walk along with you for five or ten miles. You are not going to drag a 150-pound animal three miles through the woods. It is going to completely exhaust you. You just have to know to move slower with them at their pace. And if they are not comfortable with an area, you have to help them. A lot of the army and firefighting side that is ingrained into us after years of doing the job is, here's your objective, now go accomplish it. With the goats, you may plan your trip from point A to point B for day one, but they may decide not to get from point A to point B in that specific time. It is all a part of enjoying that journey and knowing that you are not out there to hurry up and get to your location. You are out there basically to break that clock and to live more freely and enjoy it. The boys' trips into the woods have created a tradition of healing, passing down the joy of the outdoors in the world of pack goats. They even did a winter hike with their children, goats and sleds. We hiked with them through and spent the night out in the cooler temperatures. We have jackets for the goats and laid branches down on the snow for their bedding. If you are uncomfortable, the goats are uncomfortable. If the horns are cold, the goat itself is probably cold. The goats are part of the family. I have included much more in this write-up. Our interview included additional conversations about food, diet, saddles, baggage, and medical care. I have learned that the life of goat packing is one of continuous education and the practice of patience as the goat guides you, not the other way around. I could imagine the open sky and fresh wild air as I transcribed our interview and wrote the article. Perhaps I should have grounded as I wrote and paid true homage to the power of nature and its pull on us as human beings. There is no question about the bravery our soldiers carry into battle, and there is a quieter side to that bravery that is carried for life after wartime duty. It's a constant reminder that, for a time, 
They wondered if they were ever coming home. The emotional bravery they carry in their own packs is a weight often heavier than any kit could haul into the wild. It was my honor to interview Brandon Green and to tell a story of hope and healing and inspire many more to take to the trails in continued exploration of the solace of silence. Are you looking for the perfect fitting, fully customizable pop-up truck camper for your next adventure? Then look no further than the selection from four-wheel campers. From classic slide-in, bed top, and flatbed configuration designs, four-wheel campers has the setup you need. With extensive available custom options and precision built in Woodland, California, four-wheel campers has been providing quality equipment for the outdoor community since 1972. For more information on the pop-up camper you've been looking for, then pop on over to fourwheelcampers.com. That's F-O-U-R, wheelcampers.com. Hisega in the Hills by Susan Tregu. Hisega. From the sound of the word and the location of the tiny community that is its namesake, one can be forgiven for thinking the Hisega label has Native American origins but its surprising origins go back only about a hundred years. In a deep canyon west of Rapid City in the Black Hills of South Dakota, a rustic lodge bears the same name and welcomes guests seeking outdoor adventures. It was August of 1908 when a group of 17 young people rode the train from the capital city of Pierre for a vacation along the rushing waters of Rapid Creek. They called themselves the Pierre Party and made camp in a canyon of tall pines and sheer cliffs. Taking day trips by railroad to see other sites in the Black Hills, they enjoyed the respite of the cool nights and decided to make it a permanent camp, creating its title by taking the first letter of the given name of six of the women, which came out to be H-I-S-E-G-A. Helen, Ida, Sadie, Ethel, Grace, and Ada. It was the historical equivalent of carving their initials in the bark of a tree but perhaps with more enduring results. Soon, a two-story hotel was built on the banks of Rapid Creek alongside the railroad. Vacation cabins sprang up, and the village of Hisega even boasted a post office. The hotel still stands today, welcoming guests who enjoy the pleasures of good food and the soothing sounds of Rapid Creek lulling them to sleep in the night air refrigerated by the cold torrent. It was a naturally air-conditioned hotel in a time when such luxuries were rare, and remain so today. Mike and Tara Flannery, the adventurous owners of Hisega Lodge, are Black Hills natives with expert knowledge of the best trails for motorcycling, hiking, and mountain biking. Our Hisega Lodge experience began in 2019, when we, Bill and Susan Dragoo, with Dragoo Adventure Rider Training, took part in the Flannery's' inaugural Adventure Motorcycle Immersive Training Tour. Building on the success of that first event, we returned in 2020 for another training tour, in which formal adventure motorcycle training preceded two days of enjoying the dual sport trails of the Black Hills, with coaching along the way. Stretching from western South Dakota to northeastern Wyoming, the dense pine forests of those Black Hills do indeed look black from a distance. They are also described as a 1.2 million acre, quote, island in the plains, end quote, because of the manner in which they rise from the surrounding grasslands. 
Amid these hills are rugged canyons and gulches, open grasslands, and tumbling streams. Black Elk Peak, otherwise known as Harney Peak, is the highest point in the Black Hills and in South Dakota at 7,242 feet of elevation and is the highest point in North America east of the Rockies. The region is home to Wind Cave National Park, Custer State Park, Mount Rushmore and the Crazy Horse Monument, Spearfish Canyon, and, just west of the Wyoming border, Devil's Tower. East of Rapid City lies Badlands National Park, a type of terrain distinctly different from the Black Hills, with its quasi-lunar landscape. It's no wonder this place was selected for the well-known gathering of Harley-Davidson riders at nearby Sturgis. Twisty roads in a place called Badlands seem tailor-made for the alter-ego of those who aspire to their darker sides, even if only for a few days away from the daily grind. On the first evening of Hisega's 2020 tour, however, the parking lot began to look like a BMW convention as the guests rolled in. The two-wheeled machine of choice was the BMW GS, standing for Galandestrasse, meaning land and street in German, ranging in displacement from 800 to 1,250 cubic centimeters. Two Kawasaki's, a Suzuki and a KTM rounded out the 11 rider contingent, including tour leader Mike Flannery and Dragoo Adventure Rider Training's Dart, Bill Dragoo. And instead of dragging Main Street and roaming the blacktop in large groups, this small contingency of adventure seekers would be taking on dirt, gravel, and unmaintained trails, far from all the fanfare. Textile gear with names like Klim, or Climb, replaced bare skin for protection against the elements in an unintended meeting with terra firma. Some of the guests were alumni from the 2019 Hisega event, others veterans of previous dart courses, and a few were brand new. In deference to COVID, meals were served out of doors, but spirits were undampened as everyone prepared for what was to come. The first day of training was spent in the Shanks Quarry Trail area with braking drills, counterweight turns, loose hill starts, ruts, rocks, and steep up and down hills getting the group warmed up for riding trails in the following two days. The next day, the riders were ready to roll, departing Hisega Lodge and starting with a few miles of asphalt to a short get-your-feet-wet trail, which provided a feel for the area's terrain. Then it was off to Silver City to escape from the pavement, with some water crossings and a scenic overlook near Hill City. Slate Creek Dam provided a picturesque setting for lunch, then a stretch of gravel took the riders to Castle Peak Campground, the road flowing along Castle Creek to a remote spot in the scenic canyon. There, the entourage paused as Forest Service personnel stalked the creek. It was an interesting process to watch, as hundreds of wiggling silver trout were scooped from tanks with nets and released to their new home in the wilds. The next destination was Whitetail Peak, a 6,962 feet elevation. Following a rough climb, the route continued to Black Box Campground, then Custer Peak, the last challenge of the day. The trail up Custer was rocky and steep in places, posing a fair test of skill for a moderately experienced adventure rider on a big bike. The riders displayed a wide range of abilities, as some struggled and others demonstrated their newfound knowledge with dexterity and determination. It was a tired but satisfied group which made the relaxed ride on pavement back to the lodge that night for an appetizing meal, al fresco, and a good night's rest. 
The second day of touring first took the group on asphalt to Pactola Dam, which impounds Rapid Creek in the Pactola Reservoir, the largest and deepest reservoir in the Black Hills. Then they were off on southbound trails toward Sheridan Lake, working on hill climbing skills along the way with a short but steep hill climb and descent. More trails filled the morning, with a brief but especially challenging rocky section, before heading to Hill City for lunch. A few riders were ready to call it a day after the morning on dirt, and chose to spend the rest of the afternoon on pavement while the remainder continued on the trail. The off-pavement group traveled to the Jasper Burn area in the southern Black Hills, mostly on gravel, the bane of many an adventure rider. Traction is sketchy to non-existent. Riders must remain relaxed and be willing to let the bike move around while being mindful of the forces of kinetic energy, intention against the laws of traction. Quote, it's like riding on marbles, end quote, one rider lamented. The road snaked its way across the Jasper Burn like an angry serpent draped over a bed of hot rock. Dragoo described the joy of embracing the sketchy terrain with a measure of skill. Quote, it's the perfect place to air out my KTM 790 adventure. I lean forward, chin over the steering head, roll on the power in third gear, and press on the inside foot peg. The back wheel steps out smoothly, and the bike arcs a sweeping turn to the right, spraying gravel behind like the tail of a comet. The road reverses direction as I roll off the power. I downshift while braking, and switch pressure to the opposite peg. Back on the throttle, the bike sweeps left into another drifting turn. This is as close to flying as it gets while still on the ground." End quote. After the sweeping, hilly traverse of the burn area, it was a short trip on connecting roads to Highway 16. Fueling up in Custer, riders enjoyed another mellow, scenic ride on pavement back to the lodge. That evening before dinner, the group gathered for their dart graduation. Friendships had been forged or strengthened, riding skills had been learned and honed, and the consensus was that it had been a splendid adventure, with many voicing a desire to return for a repeat in 2021. Host and tour guide Mike Flannery sat in the riders' midst listening to comments, compliments, and critique, and the common theme was they had learned a lot. Justin chimed in with, quote, My favorite part was learning to ride much faster on my 1200 GS rally without fear of losing control. Just the information that was shared each time we stopped in the shade followed by immediate application following Bill at a spunky pace over rocks, ridges, through ruts, and around sandy turns was priceless. I could have continued riding the way I had always been doing it for the rest of my life and never learned what I learned yesterday morning. I didn't know what I did and what I didn't know." End quote. Another rider's observation spoke to the camaraderie among the group. Jerry Weinstock is new to riding motorcycles and has made it his mission of late to not only ride a motorcycle, but also to become an adventure rider. Quote, there are no jerks among us, end quote, he said. The rest of the group echoed the sentiment about the support the riders displayed for each other as, one by one, they described what they had learned. The tour had begun with a skills refresher, but ended as a moment of recognition of what the adventure lifestyle does for the spirit, especially kindred spirits. Hisega Adventure Lodge aspires to provide these experiences for all outdoor enthusiasts. Motorcyclists are only one genre catered to there. We are fortunate to have played a small part in their mission. For additional resources, visit the Hisega Adventure Lodge website at www.hisegaadventurelodge.com. 
You can also learn more about adventure motorcycling and take classes from one of the finest adventure motorcycle trainers in the United States by visiting the Dragoo Adventure Rider Training website at www.buildragoo.com. Where Does the Road End? by Karen Marijkiewicz and Cohen Wubbles. Since part of Peru is covered in Amazon rainforest, exploring it is not a matter of course as there are very few roads and those are often plagued by landslides and collapsing bridges. We took up the challenge to drive down the Andes into the Amazon. How far would we be able to go? It was 6 a.m., the world black and cold. Dressed in all our winter clothes and wrapped in blankets, we sat in our camping chairs, waiting for our part of the world to wake up. A minuscule stripe of red appeared on the horizon, opening up a thick layer of clouds that announced the start of a magnificent show of Mother Nature. As you can be mesmerized by the flames of a campfire, so we sat in awe of clouds. Yes, clouds. Mother Nature at her best. At 12,000 feet, Tres Cruces is situated on the edge of the High Andes Mountains. Right below the cliffs stretches the hot and humid Amazon forest. Because of the big differences in temperatures, sunrise is often accompanied by a continuous coming and going of mist and clouds. One moment, we were enveloped by a fog so thick we were unable to spot the land cruiser just a few meters away, and then, within minutes, the clouds burned off and wisps of fog floated above the tropical foliage. The sky turned blue, and we figured the show was over, only for it to start from scratch as gray clouds rolled over the land and swallowed us up once more. This went on for some four hours, and the sight was magical beyond words. Peru's best-known landscapes, arguably, are the Andean Mountains and the Atacama Desert on its western flank, both running north to south alongside each other. Less known is that along Peru's eastern border runs the Amazon rainforest. The region is hard, if not impossible, to reach by road. Taking a boat is the way to go. We were in southern Peru, not far from Cusco and the famous Machu Picchu archaeological site. Twisting, asphalted roads had led us to Trace Cruces on the very eastern edge of the mountains. Below us stretched the Manu National Park, and to travel to the heart of it, it was necessary to take a boat. That, however, was not our cup of tea, and we decided to challenge ourselves and see how far the land cruiser could take us into the rainforest. There was only one road in and out. Down the Amazon Rainforest When the cloud cum sunrise spectacle was over, we packed up and followed the asphalted ribbon, meandering through an increasingly thick rainforest. From the high plains, dominated by marum grass, Spanish moss, and yellow flowers, we descended some 6,000 feet. The air became thick and muggy, waterfalls were splashing on the road, which became increasingly eroded, resulting in deep ruts and protruding stones. At a 130-foot waterfall, locals were filling their canisters with drinking water, and we followed their example. It didn't take long before we were told to wait. As a result of landslides and collapsing bridges, road work was an ongoing project here. In that sense, it was a tricky road trip because you could easily get stuck for hours, if not days, because of road work and or landslides. 
We had known this beforehand and had enough time on our visas not to have to worry about it. Workers were repairing a particularly bad stretch and were putting a pipe in place for drainage for which a massive boulder needed to be removed. They had been working at it since early morning and expected to need another three hours. That decided our place to have lunch. With a plate of pasta and pesto and a glass of wine, we had a splendid meal alongside the road. The trip to this part of the rainforest is particularly popular with birders who come here specifically to see the cock of the rock bird. In the late afternoon, we met a group that allowed us to tag along for a bit, and we got to spot two of the bright orange birds amidst the green leaves. In the group was an American who owned a 1963 Land Cruiser BJ-40, and he shared his binoculars with us. They were staying at the Cloud Forest Lodge, which was out of our budget range, but the manager kindly allowed us to camp in the parking lot and use the bathroom. Instead of drawing the blinds and covering them with blankets to keep the heat inside as we had done at Tres Cruces, we now had trouble breathing and had to fight off mosquitoes. Livelihoods in the Amazon We woke up under a bright blue sky with pleasant temperatures. The birders had been up for a while and were walking past the land cruiser. The rainforest played its own early morning concert with twittering birds and humming insects. The road continued downhill until we hit the plains, wide and dusty. On the latter it rode, thick clouds of dust trailed behind the land cruiser. Among the road users were heavy unimogs used for logging, with impressive winches on their bumpers. The cleared forest had made way for the cultivation of bamboo, sugarcane, and other crops, as well as housing. Many walls of the wooden houses sported logos for political parties and a sign explaining how to vote. You want more education in sports? Put a cross in the square with the drawing of a cup on the voting sheet, or such explanations. In Peru, voting is mandatory. Apart from an intensive logging industry, Peru has a flourishing coca, or rather cocaine industry. Chewing coca leaves has been a part of the local way of life for ages and causes no harm. Cocaine, however, is another story. It is produced in Peru's rainforest where there is plenty of water to do so, while the thick foliage minimizes the chance of being spotted by government planes that fly over the area. Regulation is strict, and when we asked locals about the drying coca leaves on the road, they asked us in return if we were journalists or working for the government. They hesitated in answering simple, innocent questions. One farmer explained that he had 25 libras of drying leaves lying on the road. He said the government regularly checked to determine whether producers of coca leaves were indeed only selling to the one buyer they were allowed to sell to. Governments spend money in these remote places to, most likely, buy votes. This is something we have seen in many places in South America. Money is spent on enormous sports complexes, huge, largely empty government buildings that can easily house all the inhabitants of the village, and plazas with benches that are by definition not placed under trees one of the big mysteries on this continent with its hot summers, as well as a sculpture of a VIP, past or present. Having gotten their votes, governments subsequently don't bother with maintenance, resulting in blistering paint on walls, unused sports fields, and empty plazas with non-functioning fountains. In one of these villages, I spotted a sign, Horno al fondo, oven in the back. To get there, I had carefully walked over a plank across a black, muddy floor, zigzagging through the shop, cum house, cum storage space, until I reached the baking area. There were two big ovens, 
one of them heated, where 5,000 loaves of bread were produced daily for the village and the surrounding communities. The baker and his family, wife and two kids, had just finished with the preparations. The dough had been divided into chunks for the typical small white loaves of Peru, but the bread wouldn't be ready for sale for another couple of hours. Next door was a restaurant with six wooden tables covered with blue plastic sheets with flowers on them. Together with the red tiled floor, purple painted walls, and plastic chairs in red and green, it made for a colorful setting. The weather is changing, the woman said, touching on a recurring theme on this continent. Everywhere, but especially in the tropics, climate change is happening fast. Until a few years ago, we knew exactly when it would rain and when it would be hot. We no longer do. It's a disaster for the farmers as they can no longer plan their seasons as they used to do, she explained. She had lived here all her life with her parents and sisters, but they had all left for the big city. She and her one-month-old son, who slept peacefully in the brightly striped blanket around her shoulder, were left to hold the fort and feed the guests. She cooked on gas, and when she wanted to serve chicken or duck, she simply picked one that was roaming freely in and around the restaurant. We enjoyed a tasty soup with rice, a potato, a slice of carrot, and cooked manioc, which here they call yuca. Cohen savored the cordero, lamb, while I had asked for a couple of fried eggs that she served with fried platana. With the meals came refresco, a sort of fruit juice, that she refilled as often as we wanted. How far can we go? Rested and with full stomachs, we returned to the road. We turned on the fridge as temperatures were rising rapidly. It was the first time in weeks we needed it. It was also time to use our ventilators again, too. It had been a while. We have no air conditioning in the Land Cruiser. With the heat came the hyenas, minuscule blood-drawing insects whose bites itch far worse than those of mosquitoes. To leave the village, we crossed the new Piclapata Bridge, which ran alongside a rotten skeleton of wooden beams suspended from steel wires covered with vines. The rainforest was reclaiming what had been hers to begin with. I couldn't find out how old the new bridge was, but leave it to South American governments, including the Peruvian, to put a sign on the bridge proclaiming the names of all Mr. Importance involved in the project. The bridge was built under the reign of President Garcia Perez, in case you were eager to know. The road worsened and the land cruiser jumped through potholes. Every once in a while a clearing allowed a grand view of Rio Madre de Dios, Mother of God's River, and thick rainforests. The road ended, we thought, in the hamlet of Atalaya. Here the tourist vans stop and tourists continue by boat to penetrate Manu National Park. On our paper map, however, the line continued deeper inland. Was there a road? We were keen to find out and stopped at a river where truck drivers were washing their trucks. We asked for the road to Shintuya. Oh, cross here, and there, and there, and then there around the corner the road continues, a young fellow explained pointing to a road that disappeared into the forest. His instructions were as vague as it sounds here. I got out of the land cruiser and waded through the ankle-deep water in flip-flops. On the other side, I spotted tracks and motioned Cohen to follow. We did this a couple of times and appeared to have found the road, or rather path, until it turned into a wide riverbed again and disappeared from view. Trucks were plying the road to load stones or sand. Where next? An elderly man indicated the road with more vague gestures. It made for some interesting driving, and it was fun trying to see how far we could get. 
the first town we came across was called Salvation, which consisted of houses of wood or concrete and a large number of government buildings. We can still be amazed by the amount of money going down the drain on government projects, like the earlier treeless plazas where nobody wants to be, but this town beat all we'd seen in South America. Here was an official 82-foot-long swimming pool, including starting blocks. Not a recreational pool, but an official competition swimming pool. Who needs this in the middle of nowhere? It can only be for the son of the mayor who wants to participate in the Olympics or something like that for this to be built. The narrow dirt road meandered on through more jungle or cleared stretches. Where man moves in, forest is cleared rapidly, which is what we have seen everywhere in the Amazon. Around four o'clock we reached the village of Shintuya. A motorcycle stopped next to us and we met Walter, a representative of the local government. He said we could camp anywhere we wanted. Just outside the village, a track led to a seemingly abandoned lodge with enough grass to find a flat spot to set up camp. There was another 18 miles to go to the last village, but we had seen our share of rainforest for the time being. No matter how nice the high temperatures, our hearts were still in the Andes. It was time to return to the mountains. Here's what's coming up in issue 41 of Outdoor by Four magazine. An adventure through time, a story about exploring the White Rim Trail in Canyonlands National Park. Matt McClendon reviews James Baroud's Explorer Rooftop Tent. Michael Holland shares a story about exploring Wyoming. And Jonathan Hansen provides a thorough analysis of lithium iron phosphate batteries. Also, be sure to visit the Outdoor by Four website at www.outdoorx4.com regularly for new tips, reviews, and stories, and join our e-newsletter to stay in the loop on the latest from Outdoor by Four. You can also follow Outdoor by Four in the adventures of our staff and contributors on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook at, at @outdoorx4, and by using the hashtag, hashtag OutdoorX4. Until our next issue... We wish each of you the happiest of adventures.